Section 14 of the Arabian Nights Entertainments, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marta Revalo, Guatemala City, Guatemala. The Arabian Nights Entertainments, Volume 1, by Anonymous. Translated by Dr. Jonathan Scott. Section 14. The Story of the Envious Man and him that he envied. In a considerable town two persons dwelt in adjoining houses. One of them conceived such a violent hatred against the other, that the hated party resolved to remove to a distance, being persuaded that their being neighbors was the only cause of this animosity. For though he had done him several pieces of service, he found that his hatred was not diminished. He therefore sold his house, with what goods he had left, and retired to the capital city of a kingdom which was not far distant. Here he bought a little spot off ground, which lay about half a league from the city, where he had a convenient house, with a garden, and a pretty spacious court, wherein there was a deep well, which was not in use. The honest man, having made this purchase, put on a dervish's habit, intending to lead a retired life, and caused several cells to be made in the house, where in a short time he established a numerous society of dervishes. He soon came to be publicly known by his virtue, through which he acquired the esteem of many people, as well of the commonality as of the chief of the city. In short, he was much honored and courted by all ranks. People came from afar to recommend themselves to his prayers, and all who visited him published what blessings they received through his means. The great reputation of this honest man, having spread to the town from where he had come, it touched the envious man so much to the quick, that he left his house and affairs with a resolution to ruin him. With this intent he went to the new convent of her dervishes, of which his former neighbor was the head, who received him with all imaginable tokens of friendship. The envious man told him that he was come on purpose to communicate a business of importance, which he could not do but in private, and that nobody may hear us, let us, said he, Take a walk in your court, and seeing night begins to draw on, command your dervishes to retire to their cells. The chief of the dervishes did as he was required. When the envious man saw that he was alone with this good man, he began to tell him his errand, walking side by side in the court, till he saw his opportunity, and getting the good man near the brink of the well, he gave him a thrust, and pushed him into it, without being seen by anyone. Having done thus, he returned, got out at the gate of the convent without being known, and reached his own house well satisfied with his journey, being fully persuaded that the object of his hatred was no more. But he found himself mistaken. This old well was inhabited by fairies and genies, which happened luckily for the relief of the head of the convent, for they received and supported him and carried him to the bottom, so that he got no hurt. He perceived that there was something extraordinary in his fall, which must otherwise have cost him his life, but he neither saw nor felt anything. He soon heard a voice, however, which said, Do you know what honest man this is, to whom we have done this piece of service? Another voice answered, No. To which the first replied, Then I will tell you. This man, out of charity, the purest ever known, left the town he lived in, and has established himself in this place, in hopes to cure one of his neighbors of the envy he had conceived against him. He had acquired such general esteem that the envious man, 
not able to endure it, came hither on purpose to ruin him, and he would have accomplished his design, had it not been for the assistance we have given this honest man, whose reputation is so great that the sultan, who keeps his residence in the neighboring city, has to pay him a visit to-morrow, to recommend the princess his daughter to his prayers. Another voice asked, What need had the princess of the dervish's prayers? To which the first answered, You do not know, it seems, that she is possessed by genie Maimon, son of Dindim, who has fallen in love with her. But I well know how this good head of the dervishes may cure her. The thing is very easy, and I will explain it to you. He has a black cat in his convent, with a white spot at the end of her tail, about the bigness of a small piece of Arabian money. Let him only pull seven hairs out of the white spot, burn them, and smoke the princess's head with the fume. She will not only be immediately cured, but be so safely delivered from Maimon, the son of Dimdim, that he will never dare to approach her again. The head of the dervishes remembered every word of the conversation between the fairies and the genies, who remained silent the remainder of the night. The next morning, as soon as daylight appeared, and he could discern the nature of his situation, the well being broken down in several places, he saw a hole by which he crept out with ease. The other dervishes who had been seeking for him were rejoiced to see him. He gave them a brief account of the wickedness of the man whom he had given so kind a reception the day before, and retired into his cell. Shortly after, the black cat, which the fairies and genies had mentioned the night before, came to fawn upon her master, as she was accustomed to do. He took her up and pulled seven hairs from the white spot that was upon her tail, and laid them aside for his use when the occasion should serve. Soon after sunrise, the sultan, who would leave no means untried that he thought of likely to restore the princess to perfect health, arrived at the gate of the convent. He commanded his guards to halt, whilst he, with his principal officers, went in. The dervishes received him with profound respect. The sultan called their chief aside, and said, Good sheik, you may probably be already acquainted with the cause of my visit. "'Yes, sir,' replied he gravely. "'If I do not mistake, it is the disease of the princess which procures me this unmerited honor. "'That is the real case,' replied the sultan. "'You will give me new life, if your prayers, as I hope they may, restore my daughter's health.' "'Sir,' said the good man, "'if your majesty will be pleased to let her come hither, "'I am in hopes, through God's assistance and favor, that she will be effectually cured.' The prince, transported with joy, sent immediately for his daughter, who soon appeared with a numerous train of ladies and eunuchs, but veiled, so that her face was not seen. The chief of the dervishes caused a pall to be held over her head, and he had no sooner thrown the seven hairs upon the burning coals than the genie Maimon, the son of Dimdim, uttered a great cry, and without being seen left the princess at liberty upon which she took the veil from her face, and rose up to see where she was, saying, Where am I, and who has brought me hither? At these words the sultan, overcome with excess of joy, embraced his daughter, and kissed her eyes. He also kissed the chief of the dervish's hands, and said to his officers, What reward does he deserve that has thus cured my daughter? They all cried, He deserves her in marriage. That is what I've had in my thoughts, 
said the sultan, and I make him my son-in-law from this moment. Some time after, the prime vizier died, and the sultan conferred the place on the dervish. The sultan himself also died without heirs male, upon which the religious orders and the militia consulted together, and the good man was declared an acknowledged sultan by general consent. The honest dervish, having ascended the throne of his father-in-law, as he was one day in the midst of his courtiers on a march, espied the envious man among the crowd that stood as he passed along, and calling one of the viziers that attended him, whispered in his ear, Go, bring me that man you see there, but take care you do not frighten him. The vizier obeyed, and when the envious man was brought into his presence, the sultan said, Friend, I am extremely glad to see you, upon which he called an officer. Go immediately, said he, and cause to be paid this man out of my treasury one hundred pieces of gold. Let him have also twenty loads of the richest merchandise in my storehouses, and sufficient guard to conduit him to his house. After he had given this charge to the officer, he bade the envious man farewell, and proceeded on his march. When I had finished the recital of this story to the genie, the murderer of the princess of the Isle of Ebony, I made an application of it to himself. O oh, genie, said I, this bountiful sultan was not satisfied with merely overlooking the design of the envious man to take away his life, but also treated him kindly and sent him back loaded with the favors I have numerated. In short, I employed all my eloquence to persuade him to imitate so good an example and to grant me pardon, but it was impossible to move his compassion. All that I can do for thee, said he, is to grant thee thy life. But do not flatter thyself that I will allow thee to return safe and well. I must let thee feel what I am able to do by my enchantments. So saying, he seized me violently, and carried me through the arched roof of the subterraneous palace, which opened to give him passage. He ascended with me into the air to such a height that the earth appeared like a little white cloud, he then descended again like lightning, and alighted upon the summit of a mountain. Here he took up a handful of earth, and pronouncing, or rather muttering, some words which I did not understand, threw it upon me. Quit, said he, the form of a man, and take that of an ape. He instantly disappeared and left me alone, transformed into an ape, and overwhelmed with sorrow in a strange country not knowing whether I was near or far from my father's dominions. I descended the mountain and entered a plain level country, which took me a month to travel over, and then I came to the seaside. It happened at the time to be perfectly calm, and I espied a vessel about half a league from the shore. Unwilling to lose so good an opportunity, I broke off a large branch from a tree, carried it into the sea, and placed myself astride upon it, with a stick in each hand, to serve me for oars. I launched out in this posture, and rode towards the ship. When I had approached sufficiently near to be seen, I exhibited to the seamen and passengers on the deck an extraordinary spectacle, and all of them regarded me with astonishment. In the meantime I got on board, and laying hold of a rope, jumped upon the deck. But having lost my speech, I found myself in great perplexity and indeed the risk I ran was not less than when I was at the mercy of the genie. 
The merchants, being both superstitious and scrupulous, thought if they received me on board I should be the occasion of some misfortune to them during their voyage. On this account one of them said, I will destroy him with a blow of this handspike. Another, I will shoot an arrow through his body. And a third, let us throw him into the sea. Some of them would not have failed to carry his threat into execution, had I not gone to the captain, thrown myself at his feet, and taken hold of his skirt in a supplicating posture. This action, together with the tears which he saw gush from my eyes, moved his compassion. He took me under his protection, threatened to be revenged on any one that would do me the least hurt, and loaded me with a thousand caresses. On my part, though I had no power to speak, I showed by my gestures every mark of gratitude in my power. The wind that succeeded the calm was not strong, but favorable. It continued to blow in the same direction for fifty days, and brought us safe to the port of a city, well peopled and of great trade, the capital of a powerful state, where we came to anchor. Our vessel was instantly surrounded with an infinite number of boats full of people, who came to congratulate their friends on their safe arrival, or to inquire for those they had left behind them in the country from whence they had come, or out of curiosity to see a ship that had performed so long a voyage. Amongst the rest, some officers came on board, desiring in the name of the sultan to speak with the merchants. The merchants appearing, one of the officers told them, The sultan our master hath commanded us to acquaint you, that he rejoices in your safe arrival, and beseeches each of you to take the trouble to write a few lines upon this roll. That you may understand the design of this request, you must know that we had a prime vizier, who besides possessing great abilities for the management of public affairs, could write in the highest perfection. This minister a few days since died. The event has greatly affected the sultan, and since he can never behold his writing without admiration, he has made a solemn vow not to give the place to anyone who cannot write equally well. Many have presented specimens of their skill, but to this day no one in the empire has been judged worthy to supply the vizier's place. Those of the merchants who thought they could write well enough to aspire to this high dignity wrote one after another what they thought fit. After they had done, I advanced, and took the roll out of the gentleman's hand, but all the people, especially the merchants, cried out that I would tear it or throw it into the sea, till they saw how properly I held the roll, and made a sign that I would write in my turn. Their apprehensions then changed into wonder. However, as they had never seen an ape that could write, and could not be persuaded that I was more ingenious than others of my kind, they wished to take the roll out of my hand. But the captain took my part once more. Let him alone, said he. Allow him to write. If he only scribbles the paper, I promise you that I will immediately punish him. If, on the contrary, he writes well, as I hope he will, because I never saw an ape so clever and ingenious, and so quick of apprehension, I declare that I will adopt him as my son. Perceiving that no one opposed my design, I took the pen, and wrote six sorts of hands used among the Arabians, and each specimen contained an extemporary distich or quatrain in praise of the sultan. My writing not only excelled that of the merchants, but was such as they had not before seen in that country. When I had done, the officers took the roll and carried it to the sultan. The sultan took little notice of any of the writings except mine, which pleased him so much that he said to the officers, 
Take the finest horse in my stable, with the richest trappings, and robe of the most sumptuous brocade, to put on the person who wrote the six hands, and bring him thither. At this command the officers could not forbear laughing. The sultan was incensed at their rudeness, and would have punished them had they not explained. Sir, said they, we humbly beg your majesty's pardon. These hands were not written by a man, but by an ape. What do you say? exclaimed the sultan. Those admirable characters, are they not written by the hands of a man? No, sir, replied the officers. We assure your majesty that it was an ape who wrote them in our presence. The sultan was too much surprised at this account not to desire a sight of me, and therefore said, Do what I command you, and bring me speedily that wonderful ape. The officers returned to the vessel, and showed the captain their order, who answered, The sultan's command must be obeyed whereupon they clothed me with the rich brocade robe, and carried me ashore, where they set me on horseback, whilst the sultan waited for me at his palace with a great number of courtiers, whom he gathered together to do me the more honor. The procession commenced. The harbor, the streets, the public places, windows, terraces, palaces, and houses were filled with an infinite number of people of all ranks, who flocked from every part of the city to see me, for the rumor was spread in a moment that the sultan had chosen an ape to be his grand vizier, and after having served for a spectacle to the people, who could not forbear to express their surprise by redoubling their shouts and cries, I arrived at the sultan's palace. I found the prince on his throne in the midst of the grandees. I made my obeisance three times very low, and at last kneeled and kissed the ground before him, and afterwards took my seat in the posture of an ape. The whole assembly viewed me with admiration and could not comprehend how it was possible that an ape should so well understand how to pay the sultan his due respect, and he himself was more astonished than any. In short, the usual ceremony of the audience would have been complete, could I have added speech to my behavior, but apes never speak, and the advantage I had of having been a man did not now yield me that privilege. The sultan dismissed his courtiers, and none remained by him but the chief of the eunuchs, a little young slave, and myself. He went from his chamber of audience into his own apartment, where he ordered dinner to be brought. As he sat at the table he made me a sign to approach and eat with them. To show my obedience I kissed the ground, arose, and placed myself at the table, and ate with discretion and moderation. Before the table was cleared I espied a standish, which I made a sign to have brought me. Having got it, I wrote upon a large peach some verses expressive of my acknowledgment to the sultan, who, having read them after I had presented the peach to him, was still more astonished. When the things were removed, they brought him a particular liquor, of which he caused them to give me a glass. I drank and wrote upon the glass some new verses, which explained the state I was reduced to after many sufferings. The sultan read these likewise, and said, A man that was capable of doing so much would be above the greatest of his species. The sultan caused to be brought him a chessboard, and asked me by a sign if I understood that game, and would play with him. I kissed the ground, and laying my hand upon my head, signified that I was ready to receive that honor. He won the first game, but I won the second and third, and perceiving he was somewhat displeased at my success, I made a quatrain to satisfy him, in which I told him that two potent armies had been fighting furiously all day, but that they concluded a peace towards the evening 
and passed the remaining part of the night very amicably together upon the field of battle. So many circumstances appearing to the sultan beyond whatever had either been seen or known of the cleverness or sense of apes, he determined not to be the only witness of these prodigies himself, but having a daughter called the Lady of Beauty, on whom the chief of the eunuchs then present waited. Go, said the sultan to him, and bid your lady come hither. I am desirous she should share my pleasure. The eunuch went and immediately brought the princess, who had her face uncovered. But she had no sooner come into the room than she put her veil on, and said to the sultan, Sir, your majesty must needs have forgotten yourself. I am surprised that your majesty has sent for me to appear among men. How, daughter, said the sultan, you do not know what you say. There is no one here but the little slave, the eunuch your governor, and myself who have the liberty to see your face and yet you lower your veil, and blame me for having sent for you. Sir, said the princess, your majesty shall soon understand that I am not in the wrong. That seeming ape is a young prince, son of a powerful sultan, and has been metamorphosed into an ape by enchantment. A genie, son of the daughter of Elvis, has maliciously done him this wrong, after having cruelly taken away the life of the princess of the Isle of Ebony. The sultan, Astonished at this declaration, turned towards me, and speaking no more by signs, but in plain words, asked me if what his daughter had said was true. Finding I could not speak, I put my hand to my head to signify that what the princess spoke was correct. Upon this the sultan said again to his daughter, How do you know that this prince has been transformed by enchantments into an ape? Sir, replied the lady of beauty, your majesty may remember that when I was past my infancy, I had an old lady who waited on me. She was a most expert magician, and taught me seventy rules of magic, by virtue of which I can, in the twinkling of an eye, transport your capital into the midst of the sea, or beyond Mount Caucasus. By this science I know all enchanted persons at first sight. I know who they are, and by whom they have been enchanted. Therefore do not be surprised if I should forthwith relieve this prince, in spite of the enchantments, from that which prevents his appearing in your sight in his natural form. Daughter, said the sultan, I did not believe you have understood so much. Sir, replied the princess, these things are curious and worth knowing, but I think I ought not to boast of them. Since it is so, said the sultan, you can dispel the prince's enchantment. Yes, sir, said the princess, I can restore him to his original shape. Do it then, said the sultan. You cannot do me a greater pleasure, for I will have him to be my vizier, and he shall marry you. Sir, said the princess, I am ready to obey you in all that you should be pleased to command me. The princess, the lady of beauty, went into her apartment, and brought thence a knife, which had some Hebrew words engraven on the blade. She made the sultan, the master of the eunuchs, the little slave, and myself descend into a private court of the palace, and there left us under a gallery that went round it. She placed herself in the middle of the court, where she made a great circle, and within it she wrote several words in Arabian characters, some of them ancient. When she had finished and prepared the circle as she saw fit, she placed herself in the center of it, where she began incantations, and repeated verses of the Koran. The air grew insensibly dark, as if it had been night, and the whole world were about to be dissolved, 
we found ourselves struck with a consternation, and our fear increased when we saw the genie, the son of the daughter of Eblis, appear suddenly in the shape of a lion of a gigantic size. As soon as the princess perceived this monster, Dog, said she, instead of creeping before me, dare you present yourself in this shape, thinking to frighten me? And thou, replied the lion, art thou not afraid to break the treaty which has solemnly made and confirmed between us by oath, not to wrong or do another any injury? Wretch, replied the princess, I justly may reproach thee with having done so. The lion answered fiercely, Thou shalt quickly have thy reward for the trouble thou hast given me. With that he opened his monstrous jaws, and sprang forward to devour her. But she, being on her guard, stepped back, got time to pull out one of her hairs, and by pronouncing three or four words, changed it into a sharp sword, with which she cut the lion in two through the middle. The two parts of the lion disappeared, while the head changed into a large scorpion. Immediately the princess turned herself into a serpent, and fought the scorpion, who, finding himself worsted, took the shape of an eagle, and flew away. But the serpent at the same time took also the shape of an eagle, that was black and much stronger, and pursued him, so that we lost sight of them both. Some time after they had disappeared, the ground opened before us, and out of it came forth a black and white cat, with their hair standing on end and mewing in a frightful manner. A black wolf followed close after her, and gave her no time to rest. The cat, being thus hard-pressed, changed into a worm, and being near a pomegranate, accidentally fallen from a tree on the side of a canal which was deep, but not broad, pierced the pomegranate in an instant, and hid itself, but the pomegranate swelled immediately, and became as big as a gourd, which, mounting up to the roof of the gallery, rolled there for some time backward and forward and then fell down again on to the court and broke into several pieces the wolf had in the meanwhile transformed itself into a cock and now fell to picking up the seeds of the pomegranate one after another but finding no more he came towards us with his wings spread making a great noise as if he would ask us whether there were any more seed there was one lying on the brink of the canal which the cock perceiving as he went back ran speedily thither, but just as he was going to pick it up, the seed rolled into the river, and turned into a little fish. The cock leaped into the river, turned into a pike, and pursued the small fish. They continued both under water above two hours, and we knew not what was become of them, but suddenly we heard terrible cries, which made us tremble, and a little while after we saw the genie and the princess all in flames. They threw flashes of fire out of their mouths at each other, till they came to a close combat. Then the two fires increased, with a thick burning smoke which mounted so high that we had reason to apprehend it would set the place on fire. But we very soon had a more pressing occasion of fear, for the genie, having got loose from the princess, came to the gallery where we stood, and blew flames of fire upon us. We must all have perished had not the princess, running to our assistance, forced him to retire, and defend himself against her. Yet, notwithstanding all her exertions, she could not hinder the sultan's beard from being burnt, and his face scorched, the chief of the eunuchs from being stifled, and a spark from entering my right eye and making it blind. The sultan and I expected but death when we heard a cry of, Victory! Victory! 
and instantly the princess appeared in her natural shape, but the genie was reduced to a heap of ashes. The princess approached us, and hastily called for a cup full of water, which the young slave, who had received no hurt, brought her. She took it, and after pronouncing some words over it, threw it upon me, saying, If thou art become an ape by enchantment, change thy shape, and take that of a man which thou hadst before. These words were hardly uttered when I again became a man, in every respect as I was before my transformation, excepting the loss of my eye. I was prepared to return the princess my thanks, but she prevented me by addressing herself to her father. Sir, I have gained the victory over the genie, as your majesty may see, but it is a victory that costs me dear. I have but a few minutes to live, and you will not have the satisfaction to make me the match you intended. The fire has pierced me during the terrible combat, and I find it is gradually consuming me. This would not have happened had I perceived the last of the pomegranate seed, and swallowed it, as I did the others when I was changed into a cock. The genie had fled thither as to his last entrenchment, and upon that the success of the combat depended, which would have been successful, and without danger to me. This oversight obliged me to have recourse to fire and to fight with those mighty arms as I did between heaven and earth in your presence, for in spite of all this redoubtable art and experience, I made the genie know that I understood more than he. I have conquered and reduced him to ashes, but I cannot escape death, which is approaching. The sultan suffered the princess, the lady of beauty, to go on with the recital of her combat, and when she had done, addressed her in a tone that sufficiently testified his grief. My daughter, said he you see in what condition your father is alas i wonder that i am yet alive your governor the eunuch is dead and the prince whom you have delivered from his enchantment has lost one of his eyes he could say no more for his tears sighs and sobs deprived him of the power of utterance suddenly the princess exclaimed i burn i burn she found that the fire had at last seized upon her vital parts, which made her still cry, I burn, until death had put an end to her intolerable pains. The effect of that fire was so extraordinary that in a few moments she was wholly reduced to ashes, as the genie had been. I cannot tell you, madam, how much I was grieved at so dismal a spectacle. I had rather all my life have continued an ape or a dog, than to have seen my benefactress thus miserably perish. The sultan, being afflicted all that can be imagined, cried piteously, and beat himself on his head and breast, until being quite overcome with grief, he fainted away, which made me fear for his life. In the meantime, the eunuchs and the officers came running at the sultan's lamentations, and with much difficulty brought him to himself. It was not necessary that the prince or myself should relate the circumstances of the adventure, to convince them of the affliction it had occasioned us. The two heaps of ashes, to which the princess and the genie had been reduced, were a sufficient demonstration. The sultan was hardly able to stand, but was under the necessity of being supported to his apartment. When the knowledge of this tragical event had spread through the palace and the city, all the people bewailed the misfortune of the princess, the lady of beauty, and commiserated the sultan's affliction. Public mourning was observed for seven days, and many ceremonies were performed. The ashes of the genie were thrown into the air, but those of the princess were collected into a precious urn, to be preserved, and the urn was deposited in a superb mausoleum, 
constructed for that purpose on the spot where the princess had been consumed. The grief of the sultan for the loss of his daughter confined him to his chamber for a whole month. Before he had fully recovered his strength, he sent for me. Prince, said he, attend to the commands I now give you. Your life must answer if you do not carry them to execution. I assured him of exalt obedience, upon which he went on thus. I have constantly lived in perfect felicity, but by your arrival all the happiness I possess has vanished. My daughter is dead, her governor is no more, and it is only through a miracle that I am myself yet alive. You are the cause of all these misfortunes, under which it is impossible that I should be comforted. Depart hence, therefore, in peace, without further delay, for I must myself perish if you remain any longer. I am persuaded that your presence brings misfortune with it. Depart, and take care never to appear again in my dominions. No consideration whatever shall hinder me from making you repent your temerity, should you violate my injunction. I was going to speak, but he prevented me by words full of anger, and I was obliged to quit the palace, rejected, banished, an outcast from the world. Before I left the city, I went into a banyu. Here I caused my beard and eyebrows to be shaved, and put on a calendar's habit. I began my journey not so much deploring my own miseries, as the death of the two fair princesses, of which I have been the occasion. I passed through many countries without making myself known. At last I resolved to come to Baghdad, in hopes of getting myself introduced to the commander of the faithful, to move his compassion by relating to him my unfortunate adventures. I arrived this evening, and the first man I met was this calendar, our brother, who spoke before me. You know the remaining part, madam, and the cause of my having the honor to be here. When the second calendar had concluded his story, Zobeide, to whom he had addressed his speech, said, It is well, you are at liberty. But instead of departing, he also petitioned the lady to show him the same favor vouchsafed to the first calendar, and went and sat down by him. End of section 14